Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Meanwhile, the believers, who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to the Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. When the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy, and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith, and many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. During this time, some prophets traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up in one of the meetings and predicted by the Spirit that a great famine was coming upon the entire Roman world. This was fulfilled during the reign of Claudius. So the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea, everyone giving as much as they could. This they did, entrusting their gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. After delivering the relief offering to the church in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Saul returned to Antioch. With them, they brought John, also called Mark. The church in Antioch was blessed with prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menon, who was an advisor to the ruler Herod, and Saul. They were fasting, waiting for guidance, and while worshiping one day, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. So, after the church fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them out. Led by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Cilicia to catch a boat to the island of Cyprus. And upon their arrival in Salimus, they went to the Jewish meeting places to preach God's word, with John there to assist them. They traveled across the island to Paphos, where lived a Jewish wizard and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who served under uh, Sergius Paulus, the governor of the island. The governor, an intelligent man, invited Barnabas and Saul to visit him so he could hear their message firsthand. But that magical Bar-Jesus protested, not wanting the governor to become a believer. But Saul, called Paul, was full of the Holy Spirit and boldly confronted the wizard. You are against everything good, Paul exclaimed. You are a son of the devil. You're full of hot air and lies, and now you're face to face with the Lord whose name you are trying to pervert. Now you will be blind for a while, even from sunlight. Right away, a shadowy mist darkened around the wizard, and he begged someone for their hand to lead him. When the governor saw this, he believed, and he was captivated by the teachings of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Living God, may the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you. Open my heart and the hearts of all who hear your word today, 
to receive what it is you have to say to us, not only in our minds, Lord Jesus, but in our hearts. May it take root and change our lives. Amen. Over the past few weeks, we've really gotten into the weeds in the book of Acts. I mean, we've witnessed the conversion narrative of, of Saul and, and Peter and the Roman centurion. We saw how each one of us is is in an ongoing conversion ourselves, which is such good news because it means that Jesus is not done with me and he's not done with you yet. And then we took the last two Sundays and slowed way down and looked at Acts chapter 12 and the prison break series where uh, Peter's incarcerated and the spirit moves and, and breaks him out into new freedom and life while the, the church is praying for his release and Herod is standing against and we see in this uh, spiritual battle that God prevails. And then as we enter chapter 13 today, we come to an intersection in the story. With all the focus on Peter and Jerusalem lately, we've almost lost track of guys like Saul and Barnabas. And today we're going to be rushing, uh, see, we're going to see them rushing back into the frame of the story. And we're going to find out that they've been hard at work as the Holy Spirit has been leading. In fact, let's just take a moment to remember that this whole story, the whole book of Acts, is the work of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Way back in Acts chapter 1, Jesus promises the disciples, saying, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now notice that Jesus' promise is firm, and it's sure, and it's positive. Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen. If you ever wonder what your place in life is, if you ever get lost, like not knowing what your purpose is as a disciple of Jesus, well, Jesus is firming things up in this passage. But here's the best part. Jesus' promise is sure and true, but the method is not up to your strength or your ability or your goodness or your intelligence or your faithfulness. All the verbs in Jesus' promise are passives, meaning that they are things done by Jesus to and through you and I. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses. See? And, and then the book just takes off. The Spirit falls in chapter 2, right in Jerusalem. In fact, let's just situate ourselves geographically. Let's journey from Bellingham to Jerusalem on the map. That's where the Spirit was first poured out on the disciples. Then we see representatives from all around the world, Jewish pilgrims who are at the Pentecost festival, they come to believe in Jesus. Then we see opposition against the gospel from religious leaders and corrupt kings and zealous patriots. Each time there's martyrdom or imprisonment, the gospel just spreads in the power of the Spirit. It's unstoppable. And as we engage in our text today, I want to remind us that most of what we read about in, in the biblical narrative is descriptive, not prescriptive. In other words, biblical history isn't designed for us to copy everything. I mean, all you have to do is follow the story of Jacob or any of the book of Judges or really any character except Jesus, and you'll see what I mean. Like, not every character in the Bible is meant for you to copy their, their lifestyle. Biblical narrative describes what happens, and it doesn't encourage us to follow all the examples. But that being said, in almost every biblical narrative that I can think of, there are lessons to be learned, 
And at a bare minimum, we see the character of God and how he interacts with wayward people like you and me. In this passage, we're going to be focusing uh, on four lessons about how the gospel of, of Jesus spreads out. And I guess that begs the question, what is the gospel in the first place? First of all, the gospel is good news. The good news that Jesus is king. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the mission of Israel. It is through him that people not only receive forgiveness of sin and eternal life, but they receive wholeness and community and truth and healing. The gospel is about God's salvation, God's reign coming to bear on all creation, and the invitation is for all who follow Jesus to begin walking in this new reality, even before the kingdom of God comes in fullness. And the first lesson in the spread of the gospel is that the Holy Spirit spreads the good news in and through imperfect people because there aren't any kind of other people to work in and through. The Spirit is the great evangelist of the church. The Spirit spreads the church out using times of trial and times of abundance at the Spirit's disposal. If we consider the scripture reading from today, we remember that after Stephen was martyred, a bunch of believers left Jerusalem and began to spread out all over. Some ended up in Antioch, and eventually the gospel spread not only to Jews but also to Gentiles. So then Barnabas was dispatched from Jerusalem to go check out the scene in Antioch. And there he encourages the church, but then he goes to get some help. And he goes to get Saul. Remember him? Saul, the zealous persecutor of the church, who then turned into a fiery preacher for the gospel. So fiery that the more mature apostles saw that if they didn't intervene, Saul was quickly going to get arrested and probably killed. So they sent him back to his hometown of Tarsus, where he was originally from. Now, we don't know a whole lot about what Saul actually did up there, but we think it was for over 10 years. What a time of growth it must have been. What a soul-searching time. Here he was, a Jewish Pharisee who was also a Roman citizen, who spoke Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, and Aramaic, highly educated, newly committed disciple of Jesus. And now he's back home in Tarsus with his tail between his legs. The young buck who was so full of confidence is now learning and earning the stripes of humility in the slow process that only time and experience and starts and failures can achieve. But Barnabas saw a quality in Saul when he first advocated for him earlier in the book of Acts. And when Barnabas saw what was happening in Antioch, he knew Saul could be helpful to him. After all, with his dual citizenship, his academic clout, his gifting as a teacher, Saul was just the kind of guy who could help disciple the infant church in Antioch. The Spirit is the great evangelist, and the Spirit works through imperfect people, people like Saul and people like us. Now, the second lesson we learn about the Spirit and the spread of the gospel is that place, people, and context matter a lot. When I say the word missionary, what comes to mind first? Usually it's a white person going to a faraway land where they don't seem like they fit in. And of course this does happen. And this can have success um, because lesson one, the spirit is the great evangelist and works through imperfect people and imperfect methods. 
But the most effective spread of the gospel happens when we pay attention to place and people and context. Antioch was a cosmopolitan, urban, multi-ethnic, multicultural, pluralistic city. And during the first century AD, Antioch was a bustling center of international trade, which meant people from all over the world were both passing through at any given moment, and many of them were immigrating there and settling there, setting up shop. Paying attention to place matters. Paying attention to context matters. With this new church in a truly urban, multicultural context, you would need teachers and leaders who could speak the language and know the culture and still have the maturity to disciple new believers. Barnabas knew Saul could help out because not only was he a gifted teacher, but he was a dual citizen, spoke many languages, and was from Tarsus, which is just outside of Antioch. Now look at the makeup of the other leaders as we start chapter 13. There's Barnabas, who's from Cyprus. Simeon, who had the nickname Niger, meaning dark or black, he was likely from North Africa. And many scholars believe this is the same guy who carried the cross of Jesus, Simon from Cyrene. Simon and Simeon are often interchangeable in, in Greek writing. Then there's Lucius of Cyrene, again in North Africa, in modern-day Libya, just miles from Benghazi. There's Menean, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, which means that he was a man of high standing, well-educated, and likely Luke's source for all his information on the Herodian family. And finally, there was Saul. So in the early church in Antioch, there were two Africans, a Roman citizen from Tar Tarsus, a Levite from Cyprus, and a member of the aristocracy, all disciples of Jesus, all able to help this young, multi-ethnic church grow in maturity. Context matters. People matter. Place matters. Did you know that the world is increasingly becoming more and more urban? In 1800, roughly 10% of the world's population lived in urban centers. Today, over 55% of the world's population live in technically urban centers, taking up a geographical range of only 1% of the inhabitable geography of the earth. It's amazing. And here's what that means. The world is coming to cities. It used to be that you had to go places to reach the world, and there's still great need. But pay attention to any major urban center, and you'll find pockets of the nations right in that city. In Kent, Washington, for example, there are over 40 different first languages other than English represented in the elementary school system alone. And when we see Barnabas and Saul go on their first missionary journey, they begin in Cyprus. That's where Barnabas is from, where he knows the culture and the lay of the land in the heart language of the people. And it's there when sharing the gospel with the Roman proconsul uh, Sergius Paulus that Saul changes his name from Saul to Paul. Now, why does he do that? He does that, I believe, because Saul is a Hebrew name of course, from King Saul, and it has great historical roots. But when you say Saul in the Greek language, it had some really negative connotations, connotations that would make it so that people may not hear the message of a man named Saul saying them. So he changes his name to Paul, and he's the ultimate contextualizer of the gospel. Remember, it is Paul himself who says, I've become all things to all people so that some may come to know Jesus. Could Jesus be calling you to go reach a tribe or nation of people who have never heard the gospel before? 
absolutely, he could totally do that. And he may do that to someone in, in our very church. But I tell you without hesitation that unless that happens, he has called you right where you are. Do we even know, I mean, really know the place in which we're living? Do we know the different groups of people who call Bellingham and Whatcom County their home, but might be from other parts of the world? Do we take time to understand the people who are here long before us? Lummi Nation, for example. Place, people, context, it all matters. The third lesson we can learn from this amazing story is the importance of prayer and discernment. We've already learned that the Holy Spirit is the great evangelist and is the main force in spreading the gospel. But isn't it always better to work in concert with the Holy Spirit than feel like you're being used in spite of yourself? I've spoken several times on, in other sermons on discernment and prayer and fasting, and we simply don't have time to break all of those things down and their nuances here in this moment. But let's just look at how the gospel spreads in Acts. It's underlined with prayer every single time. In Acts 2, the disciples are praying in the upper room, and then the Spirit falls upon them at Pentecost. In Acts 4, the church prays for boldness to proclaim God's word, and in response to that prayer, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. It was on the way to afternoon prayer in the temple when Peter and John happen upon the man who was born lame, and they heal him in the power of Jesus. It was in prayer that both Peter and Cornelius, uh, the Roman centurion, received prompts uh, from Jesus to meet each other. In Acts 11, a prophet declares that a famine is coming, right? And it was in discerning the scriptures of Jesus, the way of Jesus, that prompted the church to take up a collection to help others in need. They didn't need a lightning bolt or a special word from God to know that they ought to help each other out. That's just Jesus 101. And in Acts 13, the disciples in Antioch are worshiping. Uh, the word there, it means that they were singing and praying and publicly teaching and hearing the scripture. And they were fasting. And in that worship context, we see the Spirit set aside people for mission. Now, it is not a coincidence that God speaks when people pray and worship and know how to read the times based on Scripture. Now, keep in mind that these Bible stories we're reading, where the Spirit sends these people there or gives people power to heal there, these are highlights. For every time we read about the Spirit seeking, uh, speaking to people and sending them on mission, we should also imagine, uh, imagine countless other prayer and worship gatherings where people are simply praying and worshiping together. You don't always get a word from the Lord. In other words, if you want to have discernment and a word from the Lord, it helps to put ourselves in the consistent stream of worship and prayer and community life. That's where God most often speaks. Fourth, the final lesson we learn is that wherever the, go the gospel goes forth, there will be resistance. In this story, there's a man named Bar-Jesus. Um, you know, that's so ironic because it means son of Jesus or son of salvation, right? And he's resisting the gospel of Jesus. And his nickname or his other name is Elemis, which means skillful. He was associated with the Eastern arts of reading the stars and magic incantations, but he was also Jewish, which I know it sounds oxymoronic, right? Because what we know about Jewish people is that they 
were only, they're monotheists, right? Only one God and they wouldn't dabble in arts. And yet there's all kinds of stories, even in the Bible of how, like, how did Saul find uh, the witch of Endor, right? And she was apparently Jewish. And how did all the Jewish people know to send him there, right? So there's always this syncretism and especially on the, uh, in the town of Paphos on Cyprus. I mean, it was a syncretic Mecca. They had this uh, cult to Aphrodite and a mixture of another goddess from Syria, and they mastered together to be some kind of new thing. So anyway, this is the kind of stuff going on where Paul and Barnabas are ministering. So regardless, he realizes, this Elemis, he realizes that Sergius Paulus is dangerously close to believing in the gospel of Jesus. And he knows that if this happens, his role as court magician or wise man would be over. So he tries to intervene, and he tries to block the message of Jesus. Now, there's always a cost to following Jesus because Jesus does not share allegiance. In the Roman world, you might serve all sorts of different gods and goddesses. You might also have a Jewish court magician for good measure just to cover your bases, right? But Jesus demands all of a person. And Elymas knew all of that. He knew the, the single nature of worship of Jesus and he felt threatened. And there's a cost right here in Bellingham or wherever you are. There's a cost of allegiance and devotion. Jesus doesn't share power with others. And it's not because he's insecure, but because he knows that nothing else truly produces life in us. So expect resistance, but also expect the Holy Spirit to overcome. In this story, Paul challenges Elemis, And in the power of the Spirit, Elemis is blinded for a time, and two things happened. First, Sergius Paulus becomes a believer because he was amazed both at the content and at the power of the word of the Lord. And second, we have some hope for Elemis because can you think of someone else who was opposing the gospel and then was blinded and led around by the hand and then turned out to be a follower of Jesus? Paul himself, right? Could it be that there's also hope in the story for Elemis, who may come to repentance and, like Paul, come to his senses and turn to Jesus? We can sure hope so. And I think we can hope so for everyone we meet. Thanks be to God.